In 2017, I interviewed Professor Wen Liu about the historic news of May 24, 2017, that Taiwan's Constitutional Court had ruled that marriage is not strictly defined as being between a man and a woman. This paved the way for same-sex marriage to be legalized in Taiwan in 2019. Since the Stonewall Uprising, which led to the international gay rights movement, which began on June 28, 1969, June has become recognized as Worldwide Pride Month. So in recognition of Pride Month, I'd like to reshare my interview with Gender Studies Professor Wen Liu. Here it is. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. After the historic ruling of Taiwan's Constitutional Court on May 24th that marriage was not solely defined as being between a man and a woman, I wanted to interview someone about the LGBTQ movement in Taiwan. And that's how I was introduced to Gender Studies Professor Wen Liu. Wen is an assistant professor at SUNY Albany. Welcome to the podcast, Wen. Hi. Hi, Wen. It's so good to have you on the podcast. I was so excited to have you on the podcast in light of the recent ruling in Taiwan on May 24th. Um, the ruling I'm referring to is the ruling by the Constitutional Court in Taiwan that same-sex marriage could be legalized. So it's like a really historical ruling, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the background of the LGBTQ movement in Taiwan. Yeah, so could you tell me a little bit in general about the history of the LGBTQ movement in Taiwan? Like, how has it developed? Sure. So people who have been following the uh, marriage equality movement probably know that Mr. Tijiawe, right, I mean, he has been proposing this idea of marriage equality since, I think, 1980s. Mm-hmm. But during that time, I think homosexuality in Taiwan was still seen as something perverted, right, something that's inherently pathological. So mm-hmm. all the media attention has been focusing on the negative aspects of the LGBTQ communities. But during that time, I mean, people have already started organizing underground and, you know, different city centers. And people have gathered, you know, in places like parks, some clubs and bars, and also like around schools. Like in the 1990s, there's a sort of new insurgence of feminist consciousness, mm-hmm. but more particularly in the academic circle. So you get different pockets of people who are working for LGBTQ rights. And something I think interesting about Taiwan is that, I mean, we all know that the martial law was lifted right during um, 1987. And yeah, so there's a ton of sort of different waves of social movements, whether it's about democracy, right, about environmental rights, about land rights, about economic rights. And gender and sexuality equality was also become part of the movement. So people have really started to thinking about how we can include LGBTQ and these sort of gender and sexual identities in our new democratic consciousness. Right. So you think that the development or the progression in the LGBTQ movement has been much more influenced by social movements than legal battles per se because I mean this seems like to me I don't know that much but this is the first major legal lawsuit that we've heard related to um, LGBTQ community in Taiwan. The LGBTQ rights movement was really sort of battle in the social movement ground and part of the legal battle really comes from the state forcing LGBTQ folks to you know fight for their own rights so just Mm -hmm. one example right to think about there's a lot of sort of police censoring 
in gay clubs and gay gyms. And I mean, it's really sort of a, an ethical censoring that they're just entering to the bars, destroying what people are doing and thinking that they're, you know, make, doing some crime just because of their sexuality or mainstream media went into lesbian bars mm. and, uh, you know, recorded folks uh, without their consent and play it on national TV. So, I mean, those are the battles that I think people had to deal with, I think, the 90s and early 2000s. So uh, I think part of the push for legalization really comes from the state's violence, right, um, mm-hmm. on the communities where people are fighting back, yeah. So you mentioned that the police actually went into, like, gyms and clubs. Like, what do you mm-hmm. mean? Like, they raided these places? Like, what did they do? Yeah, they raided, yeah, they raided the places and then basically say they possess drugs, they do, you know, illegal oh. sex activity. So that kind of media... So totally fabricated right. false um, accusations. Well, yeah, like I mean, a, lot a lot of, of cases. Times, right, a lot of times that the police will actually sort of stage the scene, make it look mm. like it's a giant orgy and people are, like, totally high. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it is pretty, I think, nasty tactic from the state. Right. Wow. Yeah. Like, what What about pop culture? Has pop culture played a role in uh, the LGBTQ community or people's awareness of it? I forgot to say that something unique about Taiwan was that during... The 1990s, is a, there was an insurgence of, I guess, LGBTQ literature, or mostly mm-hmm. gay and lesbian literature, coming mm-hmm. from Taiwanese writers. So mm-hmm. you might know Bai Shenyong's or Chou Miaojing's Crocodile Diary, which has just been translated in English and French, I think. And so those really become something like a particular invention of Taiwan during mm-hmm. that time. And most of these writers are also diasporic in some respect, right? That they study abroad, whether you know, in France, in the U.S., but continue to think about being queer or being gay and lesbian as a Taiwanese person. I think that really sort of also pushed the gay and lesbian scene of Taiwan to the more international global stage. So, I mean, compared to other East Asian countries, at least, I think we have some a very refreshing and also, in a way, like long tradition of gay and lesbian culture. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, Taiwan is also known for having the largest gay pride parade in Asia, right? Right, yeah. I think it still is in some way. Right. Do you know what year did the parade start, and do you know what the origin behind that was? Um, yeah, so the LGBTQ pride parade, so pockets of different groups actually started way earlier, like before 2000, so they just gather around in cities, but it was very small and mm-hmm. unofficial, but um, mm-hmm. during 2000, I think so it was the first sort of official Taipei LGBT pride parade and something interesting about that event was the Taipei government the mayor was Ma Yingzhou at mm-hmm. that time and he actually spoke in the pride parade oh. so it was sort of a official rec- recognition of you know this community and I think he actually said that right that Taipei as a global city right I mean it, it has to be more tolerant of diverse identity so that's really the kicked off, I think, what people call the LGBTQ pride parade today. Oh, okay. That's very interesting. It's interesting than what motivated a lot of other pride parades and marches around the world, I'm sure, which probably came more out of like a fight for, you know, gay rights or civil mm-hmm. rights, right? Yeah. What do you think have been some of the major turning points in the LGBTQ movement in Taiwan? Well, as I said, I think in the 1990s, there was sort of a emergency in literature and culture and mm-hmm. which I thought you know that was also the time that when I was growing up and coming mm-hmm. out so that mm-hmm. was kind of very 
significant to me. But the actual sort of legalization battle, right, that people are actually confronting the state directly, I think, came after 2000. So okay. as the uh, primary started, and I think the first one was called uh, civil consciousness. So people are talking about, well, it seems like Taiwan appeared to be friendly toward gay and lesbian because we don't really have any laws preventing homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, homosexuality was never illegal in Taiwan. Uh. But during that time, people started realizing that we need some like material and actual legal rights. So, right, a protection, um, sure. Protection, yeah. And so, and also, I think part of it is the globalization of LGBTQ movement was mm-hmm. also at its top, right, during the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So, and Taiwan really, I think, followed a lot of the, what uh, what U.S. is doing in some aspect. Um, whether it's the cultural exchange, academic exchange, but also the exchange in terms of social movement thinking. And so during that time, people start talking about, uh, you know, partnership rights. And I think it wasn't until 2009 that there was a coalition, Taiwan Alliance Promotes Civil Partnership Rights. Uh And that's a coalition that's sort of united by several different NGOs um, in Mm -hmm. Taiwan. And they start pushing for this idea of legalizing diverse partnerships in Taiwan. So mm-hmm. I think that's really one of the major turning points. As I said, the earlier sort of cultural recognition and also a lot of the AIDS, HIV AIDS protections and awareness toward the later to think about intimacy, partnership, etc. Mm-hmm. Oh, very interesting. So you touched on that a little bit, but how, so how do you think Taiwan compares with other countries in Asia on LGBTQ rights? I think as Someone who's living in Taiwan and elsewhere, I do think that Taiwan, in some aspects, do have more freedom for gender and sexuality representation, but also open to this kind of diversity. But it doesn't mean that like, we don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, right, I mean, problem no, right, there's a couple of like young gay folks, you know, are bullied and actually committed suicide, which mm-hmm. become part of the motivation that people wanted to push for sex education bill, mm-hmm, right, to mm-hmm. actually teach children and young people in school, like, what sexual and gender diversity uh, mm-hmm. really is. So I think there's a couple of those incidents, I think, which show that, I mean, Taiwan is really not there yet, but I do think we have a very vibrant activist community, right, that have been pushing LGBTQ rights toward forward. And I, I mean, as I know, I mean, a lot of my friends were studying gender and sexuality in different East Asian countries, like, China, sometimes Hong Kong, we think about South Korea. I mean, I think we just face such different history of colonization and also, you know, different ways of governing, right, that may sometimes make gender and sexuality rights harder to talk about, right, for, for instance, in South Korea or in Japan, sort of very sort of patriarchal, dominant kind of governance. There have been some recent, like, so-called more high-profile cases or things that happened recently that kind of uh, put more emphasis or more attention on the same-sex marriage issue, right? Uh, like, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? There was some French professor, Jack Picot, is that how you pronounce his name, who committed suicide in, in last year? Yeah, right. I mean, I think what happened, right, was, I mean, there were partners, but then they, just, they really didn't have uh, the legal protection so that they can share uh, wealth and benefits, etc., and so it becomes quite a tragedy. And and I do think, I mean, because the person was a professor, I and mean, people are paying attention. He was also a foreigner, but I, I mean, I, I do think that those things not happen quite a lot, but they're sort of a common experience is that you know LGBTQ folks 
fear, right, that you can live with someone forever, but then you have no protection or from their family or from themselves, right, to claim your partnership and, you know, to take care of someone with some kind of state protection. So that become a really sort of push toward marriage equality movement, I think, you know, in the past year or two. Yeah. Right, yeah, because he was a, a French professor. Mm-hmm. He was he was uh, from France, and he was at the <clears throat> National Taiwan University, and his partner was right. Taiwanese, and unfortunately he committed suicide over the marriage equality issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the history of the same-sex marriage battle in Taiwan, like before this historical ruling with Mr. Chi? Were there any other lawsuits or legal battles filed? Um, I think people have been trying to push for this, I mean, through different ways, right? Sometimes people are doing that through adoption rights, right? That, mm-hmm. and, you know, we have this child together, but why can I claim parenthood, right? So people are doing it in different aspects, but I think the more sort of prominent case was really pushed by, as I say, the Taiwan Alliance to promote civil partnership rights. Mm-hmm. And actually, the movement didn't actually just start with only marriage equality rights, right? I mean, the alliance really was trying to think about something beyond marriage. I mean, as you know, I mean, Taiwan, the marriage right still is pretty backwards, right? Mm-hmm. Included a lot of the sort of disproportionate obligations from, I mean, the female partner. Mm-hmm. And um, there was also the adultery law, which is, you know, it's, it's pretty backwards and, you know, anti-woman law, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in my own opinion. So, Actually, I'm not really that familiar with that. So there is, like, in the marriage law, there are things written in there about the woman's obligation in the, in the marriage and then in terms of whether there's adultery. I mean, it doesn't say that it's, it's uh-huh. the woman has to be right, only the woman has to be committed, but oftentimes, right, it is the woman that's being punished. Right. If you look at legal cases, right, mm. or uh, you, a and, and also, right, there's a trend, or you think about, I mean, adultery, right, sometimes, you know, it's, it's all, always sort of come with also prostitution charges, right, and, and, and in Taiwan, I mean, it's still a criminal offense, and oftentimes, right, it, again, it's the female sex worker that's being charged, and the adultery law is very rarely applied to, right, the person who are sort of paying for sex work. And so, I mean, a lot of the families will argue that we should decriminalize prostitution, but also decriminalize adultery, right, this fantasy of um, monogamous relationship in marriage, you know, so, which is to, to be better for, I think, women in general. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so that's one of the cases, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that sounds like that could be a whole other discussion about that. So now that uh, Taiwan's constitutional court made the historic ruling, which actually, from my understanding, is technically just saying that marriage is not defined as being between a man and a woman, so it really mm-hmm. kind of opens the door, but there needs to be some other steps that happen next, right? Mm-hmm. My understanding is that if they don't do anything in two years, then by default, same-sex marriage will be considered illegal. But then right. there's also something that they could do in this window of time. Yeah, so, so they're debating, right, um, in the judicial realm right now, right, and then thinking about, and actually, no, sorry, the legislative realm, and mm-hmm. to trying to draft a bill. But I think ideally that, you know, the law should just be passed as it is, mm-hmm. uh, which actually ensures the maximum protection of same-sex partners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's completely equivalent to what heterosexuals enjoy right now. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of activists are just worried that, you know, the legislative realm will come up with something that's less than 
um, mm-hmm. the rights of mm-hmm. what heterosexuals have now. So, mm-hmm. but then we also don't want it to wait two more years, right? So right. there's that tension at the core. I mean, often you know in Taiwan, it depends on the election circles and what other major bills. So it's kind of hard for me to say what would happen. Right. Well, so then a lot of people may think that why does the legislator need to come up with something different, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. shouldn't they just say this is going to be a part of the existing marriage law that's included? Right. And actually, when people work on that, I think it's quite complicated because mm-hmm. our law. I mean, there's a like hundreds of right small details, right, right. including. You know a lot about family obligation, family relationship, about children, children's rights. So mm-hmm. there's all these different little things that you have right. to think about. Yeah, when you apply it to same-sex partners. So, mm-hmm. but I don't want that to be an excuse, right, for people to say, "Well, it's too complicated. Sure. We should just not right work right. on it." Right. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. could you talk? This is related to something called the Marriage Equality Bill, right? And the Marriage mm-hmm. Equality Bill actually encompasses. A couple different things. Did you talk a little bit about that? So as I say, I mean, when the alliance got pushing for it, it wasn't just the marriage equality bill, which just means that we have to neutralizing marriage law for all partners, right? For same sex or opposite sex or whatnot. I mean, when they're pushing for it, there's also two other different kinds of bills. One is, you know, civil partnership bill,、mm-hmm. which is basically that you know they should enjoy. What marriage couple enjoy, like tax deduction whatsoever, right? Visit visitation rights, but it does not include, as I said, right, adultery,、mm-hmm. right? I think it was one way that they're trying to think beyond the traditional form、mm-hmm. of marriage, and so that bill would actually apply to heterosexual couples too, right? Okay.、But、those who want the right but don't want all the obligations and sort of other, you know, very. Connected, to, you know, family kind of、mm-hmm. ideas about marriage,、right. and also there's a second one about multiple family bill, I believe, and、uh-huh. it's an idea that you don't only form a family with one person, one partner, and your partner doesn't require them to be your sexual partners or someone you have some kind of、uh, rom- romance or intimacy with, right? It can be someone who's your caretaker, but you live in the same household, or multiple people can sort of bring up. A child together, which is often, you know, the cases in Taiwan, right?、Mm-hmm. You have grandpas, grandma, or aunties, or whatnot, right,、mm-hmm. um, bring up a child, right, in, in a household. So we should sort of break our imagination of family, you know, beyond the sort of nuclear family model. But those two bills were actually not what I discussed. We're discussing in the legislative round right now. So the only thing that's being sort of passed, or what the High Court was really referring to, is more closer to. The marriage equality. Oh, okay. So, yeah.、Mm-hmm. So, what other work do you think needs to be done in the LGBT community in Taiwan? Like now that you know the whole same-sex marriage issue is being、uh, worked on, but I'm sure there's more work that needs to be done. Yeah, and I just think I mean we've been focusing a lot of energy on and and then marriage equality, and it is very important. I mean, as we know, we also gain a lot of international attention for Taiwan. But for LGBTQ folks, I mean, again, right? Not everyone wants to get married, right?、Mm-hmm, and、sure. even if if the law is passed, not everyone can afford it to be married.、Mm-hmm. So I mean, but I think just the activists in Taiwan having worked on some of the more basic education, right? So really, sort of sex education and teaching for really young people, and I think that's one of the really key activism for you know for Taiwanese to start really young and to think about. There's not only one way to be a person, right?、Mm-hmm. There's different ways to form relationship. But also, I think 
something really important is that we also think about economic justice. So, I mean, as people know that, I mean, Taiwan, the young people in Taiwan really had a hard time, you know, earning a decent salary, right? And I generally think that if you can't earn adequate, you know, wages for yourself, I mean, you can't even move out of home. So how can you even come out or to form a family? And I think that's one of the major issues that young people or young college graduates are really facing is that sort of global economic depression and our government, you know, the sort of static salary that people are getting, but then you have inflation of everything else. So if we don't solve those problems, I don't think people can enjoy right, this kind of gender and sexuality freedom. So yeah, for our listeners, like, just to clarify, I think you're referring to the fact that a lot of young people these days, are, they don't even earn enough salary to rent their own apartment or to buy mm-hmm. a house for, to live on their right. own. So a really large percentage of them actually still live with their parents. So it's very hard to yeah, have this kind of independence on a lot of different levels. Thinking about, like, Asia in general, what countries do you think are going to be next to legalize same-sex marriage? What's your opinion on that? I actually, I don't know. And I know that Japan um, has something, you know, equivalent to partnership rights mm-hmm. in certain, kind of like in Shinjuku. Mm-hmm. But I do think it would be hard to think about, right, sort of national, uh, nationally recognized marriage equality in Japan, you know, very soon. So... And I think other countries are also facing very difficult battles, like as I talked about in South Korea. The status of women in general is a very, very difficult battle. And in China, even though recently there was a couple of high-profile pink economy, which means gay-owned businesses, mm-hmm. like the apps, the dating apps or whatnot, mm-hmm. just early this year, Xi Jinping actually has cracked down uh, some of the sites, social network sites, on WeChat or you know, gay dating apps. So it's really... I so think what, it's, it's, they, they shut them down? Yeah, shut them down mm. or deleted postings. And they also arrested a couple of folks, you know, high-profile feminists, mm. right? You know, the, the feminist five. So it's really not easy battle, I think, right. for right. Uh, yeah, different Asian countries. Wow, wow. Well, I, I really want to thank you because my listeners don't know, but you're actually in Taiwan right now as we're doing this call. So I really appreciate you taking time out. Usually you're based in New York, but I know that you're back in Taiwan right now. But I um, wanted to make this time so that we could talk about these important issues. Is there anything else you'd like to share or there's, if people want to know more about you or your researchers there's some way that they can get in touch with you i do um, i'm the editor of a you know, small new media magazine called new bloom and we are a bilingual online magazine we write about gender sexuality issue we write about progressive movements in taiwan mostly for the english audience so i think that's an also an outlet people wanted to pay more attention in taiwan mm-hmm. oh great so if they just google new bloom or what's their website yeah new bloom magazine Okay, newboommagazine.com. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I've been speaking with Wen Liu, SUNY Albany Gender Studies Professor. I want to thank her for taking the time out of her schedule to speak with me when she was in Taiwan in July. Wen writes for New Bloom Magazine, and you can find her writing there at newbloommag.net forward slash author forward slash Wen, W-E-N dash Liu, L-I-U. Until then, thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. 
I'm your host, Felicia Lowe. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.